Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Close the Hello, I'm Graeme Simpson. I am the Seekers' representative as well as their historian and biographer. And I'm Christopher Patrick, author of the book ABBA Let the Music Speak, a forensic look at ABBA's music, published in 2008, and very happily co-author with my colleague Graeme Simpson on the book The Seekers, the 50-year recorded history of Australia's first supergroup. moved around Australia a lot in those days and the one uh, sometimes we were living in parts where you know weren't any other kids around so we had to amuse ourselves and the one thing we were allowed to do was buy pop magazines we were given pocket money to do it and what we used to do was um, uh, we had to share them and, and my older sister would go through and she'd pull out all the pinups of you know Scott Walker and what she wanted and then I'd get what, whatever was left over and because I liked the Seekers and by that point they were in the magazines quite a lot she used to keep them in little files under you know Walker Brothers and the Rolling Stones and whatever and I thought oh I better do that too but I only had the Seekers so I started this little collection of things out of the newspapers we used to get the UK magazines too and the um, papers and when you think about it now that I was 10 then that's when what what is now called the Graham Simpson archive started you know I, 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 I that was not the intention I just thought uh, my sister eventually just chucked hers when she discovered boys I suppose um, and thought oh, I've had something um, more fun to do than you know stick someone on the wall uh, but I just never got rid of the mine. I just kept adding to it. And then, of course, we got to that point where there was the internet and eBay and things like that. And all of a sudden, I could widen that collection to find all these rarities um, from all over the world, which is why I've kind of ended up um, with what... Um, it's called the largest Seekers collection in the world. I mean, Bruce Woodley says that as well. But um, indirectly... Uh, that's what put me in touch with the group in the reunion years. Um, when Judith was doing a solo tour, her 25th anniversary solo tour in 1990, because my wife knew that um, I'd always been such a huge fan, um, she surprised me by buying tickets to this concert at the National Theatre. And I thought, oh, fantastic. So... She and I went along and saw the show that night, and it was um, phenomenal. I mean, it really was a phenomenal show. And anyway, because I had met Judith in 1970, my wife said to me, 
why don't you go backstage? And, you know, I said, oh, you know, because we had a babysitter and all that kind of thing. I said, oh, we should get home. And, and she said, oh, no, 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 you know, uh, go and say hello. Anyway, we went round the back and, of course, there was a long queue of people. And in the end, I just said, oh, look, we've got to go. And the next morning when we woke up, my wife got up and went and got the newspaper out of the letterbox and she walked into the bedroom holding the front page of the sun up with her hand over her mouth and the headline was Judy Durham death crash. And I thought, oh my God, she's been killed. Um, but it was when I read the story, it was that she'd been involved in a fatal car accident and that she was, um, you know, in hospital, as it turned out, for six months. And... Um, Anyway, to cut that a very long story short, um, I sent flowers, I think, um, to the hospital. But she went into rehab, and uh, I knew that. It was publicised that she'd gone into rehab somewhere uh, for three months. And bearing in mind my wife and I are both journalists, um, and my wife was uh, working for The Sun at the time, The Herald Sun. And uh, I was I, would, I was reading news at 3XY at that time. So I started work very early and I would come home at around one o'clock in the afternoon. And we lived in Hampton, which is very close to Beach Road in um, Hampton. And I would come turn off Beach Road into the street we lived in. And I was walking along one day and out of the corner of my eye, I saw a very, very tall man with incredibly curly hair carrying Safeway bags. And I thought, my God, that looks like Ron Edgeworth, Judith's husband at the time. And uh, and he's very distinctive because he's, his hair and his height. Anyway, I went in and I, I mentioned it to my wife. I, I said, oh, I just saw someone that was a, you know, what's the word, doppelganger for Ron Edgeworth. And she went, oh, you're George Dents. Where do you think he was heading? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Hampton Rehab was on the corner of the street we lived in, you see. And um, she said, that's where she is, and no one knows it except us. And she said, I'm going to go down there and see if I can get the first interview with her. And I said, look, instinct tells me I wouldn't just turn up. Um, She won't know who you are. I'll give you a letter to drop off at Hampton Rehab from me. And she, she knows who I am, at least. And that ultimately led to an interview uh, and my wife did two pages for the Sunday paper, first interview with Judith after the accident. And then Judith rang me late in 1992 to float the idea of the Seekers 25-year reunion. And we talked for a very long time on the phone and I mentioned my archive to her, which was fairly substantial by that point. So when they announced the tour in 1992, they needed a tour program. And because I edit magazines and things, she was like, well, you'd be perfect for it and we'd use your archival stuff. And so she and Keith came to my, or to our house one day and we went right through my collection and sort of worked out what would go into the tour program. And then that just morphed into, well, you're writing our liner notes now and you're doing every tour program. And it just sort of built and built and built. And that's how my um, relationship with them sort of began. Different to yours, though, I know. It's a wonderful, wonderful uh, description. Yes, well, uh, I met Judith for the first time uh, in 1988 
Uh, I sit, as I said earlier, I saw her in concert at Twin Town Services Club in 1984, and I probably tried to catch any concert that she had advertised uh, up to that point, uh, 1988. And as a musician, I, and ha- having loved the Seekers music for so many years since I was nine years old, I was running a string quartet in Brisbane uh, rather successfully. We did a lot of corporate uh, and uh, private uh, weddings and various events of all so- all kinds. And uh, I had to ra- arrange music for string quartet, often pop songs of the time, as well as all the classical repertoires that you would expect. And uh, of course, one of my favorite Seeker songs has always been Colors of My Life, which Judith co-wrote with David Riley back in 1967. And I decided, uh, having met Judith a couple of times at concerts backstage, around the 1988 to 1989 time, I would send her a copy of my arrangements just explaining to her I was a musician and I wanted to let her know I'm performing this beautiful song to anyone who'll hear it in our string quartet when we do the rounds in Brisbane. And uh, she wrote back a very lovely letter thanking me for... for um, she was very touched that I'd chosen Colours as, a, as an arrangement and uh, I sent her the parts and then, of course, we there were a few little twos and fro's between 1988 and and 1990 when Graham mentioned um, the awful car accident that she was involved in, and so uh, I had a few uh, backs and forths that uh, where Judith was very willing to give me information on things, and uh, I asked her about the Golden Collection. I sent her a cassette which Judith at that point I don't think had probably heard before in around 88. Uh, I asked her, can she explain this and when was this recorded? And she said, well, it actually is 1963 plus 1969 because I singled out the song All My Trials, which I said was my favourite Seekers song. And she said um, in her letter, yes, that was... uh, uh, It's obviously been produced uh, later on after the group had split up but uh, she was very happy to hear it and it was lovely. And uh, so I was doing my little bit to, to enlighten her as much as I could, uh, having been a long-time fan. And then uh, 1993 was the big tour, Silver Jubilee. And I bought two tickets, one for my dad and one for me. My mum didn't really like uh, going out at night. So I brought my dad down from Mount Tambourine, where they lived in the scenic rim of Queensland. And we went to see this magical show. And, of course, I said to Dad, I'd love to. I thought, oh, I'm too bashful to go backstage. For some reason that night, I just thought, oh, the Seekers are back together. There won't be any time for me to ask if I could, you know, say if I could wait when Judith got to the stage door as a starry-eyed fan as I was then. Uh, And so Dad and I got in the car, started driving back to Mount Tambourine, but he could tell I was a bit wistful about something. He said, what's up? And I said, it's, uh, I just feel that I'm, I'm uh, doing myself a disservice by not waiting because I've established a really lovely rapport musically with Judith and I just feel it's remiss of me to not show my appreciation as a musician of her craft and the Seekers craft as a group that I should be standing there to thank her personally. So Dad said, let's go back. So he drove the car, turned it around. We're only about 15 minutes away. Perfect timing because, of course, the group 
does have an unwinding time and they have something to eat and they before they come out to the stage door to meet fans. And this was at the concert hall at QPAC. So back I went and Dad waited in the car in the car park and I said, I'll just be up for a few minutes. And, uh, and I asked someone at stage door that looked important and said, is it possible that you could get a message to Judith Durham for me? Mention my name and the fact I arranged one of her songs for a string quartet and she'll know who, who, who it is. And lo and behold, a note came back, said, Judith would love to see you. Just wait down there and she'll come out. And of course, I had a photo taken. She was in the red dress from the second act of the Silver Jubilee concert. She stayed in her, in her dress specially so that we could have a photo together, which I still have, and it's a very much treasured photo. And following on from that fateful day, fateful evening where we had a photo together, I followed the group, of course, right through. And um, Judith became aware that I was a musician and I subsequently recorded a couple of semi-classical CDs, one of which featured her song, Colours of My Life. And she agreed to write a, a testimonial for both of these CDs. It was a flute, harp and cello combination. And that began a, a new, she looked at me with new eyes. She saw that I was a musician and she started to see me as not just the starry-eyed fan from 1993 and the 80s, but someone who really she could have a conversation with. And that went on to um, ask her after the testimonials of the CDs. I launched my ABBA book in December 2008. Both Graham and Judith uh, very proudly came up from Melbourne, especially to be my special guests to launch my book, ABBA Let the Music Speak, at the ABC's Ferry Road Studios at the time. And I was over the moon. It was just the most brilliant thing. So, so yes, we from there, uh, I started being invited by both Graham and Judith and the Seekers at large to write, uh, help out with some sleeve notes from a musical perspective, and that's brought me to where I am today, sitting across from my very, very beloved friend, Graham Simpson, and we're working together so well. talking before about um, questions I often get asked and one I get repeatedly asked um, is what's your favourite all-time Seekers song and I always answer it the same way I cannot narrow it down to one but uh, the next best thing is I can narrow it down into the original years and the um, the reunion years so and it's a hard choice in both cases but I have to say after years of considering this that from the 60s is the title track of their 1966 uh, album, Come the Day, which is a Bruce Woodley song. A little bit of trivia about this song was that when Bruce presented it to the group, it was much slower than how it was recorded. And it was Judith who just sort of said, yeah, I think it would be better if it was a bit faster, you know, a bit more urgent. Um, so that's fate had in store and that ended up being um it was never a single it was a b-side in, in one of the countries it might have been japan or something but uh it was never a single they used it as an opening um 
song on one of the tours in the 1960s. And, of course, the farewell tour uh, of Australia and uh, in the UK and New Zealand come the day's the opening song. Uh, and it's always popular with, with, with fans. So there's that one of the 60s. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And in uh, the reunion years, it is very hard. You know, I, I, I would... Part of me wants to say the shores of Avalon. Part of me wants to say Far Shore. Uh, but I think I have to go with the Bush Girl. Uh, the Bush Girl, of course, is the famous Australian poem written by Henry Lawson uh, in the 1800s. Uh, and it's set beautifully to music by Bruce Woodley. So my choices from both eras are Bruce's uh, uh, Composition. Composition. So uh, there's a, uh, not only is it a beautiful poem, but the recording, and it was Charles Fisher who record, um, produced that album, um, just Judith's lead vocal on that is almost gut-wrenchingly um, sad and, and um, uh, I can't think, what's the other word for sad? It's sort of... Um, it's emotional. But the beauty of that and the trivia thing is that um, they demoed all the songs, but also because they would, depending on their schedules, they would record at separate times. So the boys might come in and do their bit and then Judith would go in and do lead vocal over it. Or it might be the other way where Judith would be asked to do what's called a guide vocal. So that's just what you record so that the other people coming in sing to it, but then they scrap it. So she did the guide vocal for the Bush Girl on her own at 4am one morning. She was dead tired and her, her voice sounds very tired and world weary kind of thing. And she went away and the boys came in and did their bit and then the whole album got put together and for some reason they didn't hear the final product until it was actually done and shipped to stores and when she heard it she was horrified because Charles Fisher had kept the guide vocal and she put it in a courier and she sent it to me at um, my office and she was on the phone and she said you've got to hear what that what he's done to me like you know I'm horrified he's used this guide vocal Anyway, I, I said to her, look, I won't keep you on the phone, but I'll listen to it. And I, I listened to it three or four times, and I rang her back, and I said, he's done you the biggest favour. So I had to explain my rationale was that the song, the girl singing in that song is singing about the boy, the love of her life, getting on a horse and riding off into the distance, and he's going to find a new life in London, and she's stuck behind in the Australian Outback. So Judith having such a tired voice, it almost sounds like this: um, uh, a girl in that position in that in those days would have been. So it, it's just a magical um, fluke that Charles Fisher kept that guide vocal, and obviously that's what he had in mind. 
It's also extremely difficult because if we are to single out one, it's very easy to say, well, actually, I have one, but there are actually three. And I'd like to say three, but I won't because I will say that the the one that absolutely uh, captured my attention was uh, all my trials, uh, Judith's originally or, original audition tape version uh, from 1963, which Keith later masterfully reproduced uh, with added instrumentation and backing vocals. Uh, he played bass guitar, I think, as well on the 1969 version of that. And I think it still remains my absolute, it's most emotional song that I think uh, Judith ever, uh, that I believe Judith ever sang as far as I'm concerned. But then as far as a group vocal, it's important for a favourite song to be one that includes the boys and that would have to be Carnival is Over. Uh, the original mono recording of that, very, very heartfelt, very emotional, as Judith has often said in interviews. Beautiful harmonies by Keith uh, and uh, masterly produced by Tom Springfield. Um, and it really was the, the a very, very good choice because I think there was a little bit, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Graham, but there, there may have been, it may have only been Judith that wanted to push to have Carnival is over released as this follow-up single to A World of Our Own, but uh, the boys weren't well, so sure. Tom had presented them with two songs. One was The Carnival is Over and the other was a song called Hummingbird. The boys favoured Hummingbird. They thought The Carnival is Over was, and I think where they were coming from was the single before Judith had said she didn't want to do a down song so Downhearted Blues became A World of Our Own, which is an upbeat, happy song. And then Judith, for the third single, is favouring the Heartbreak song. So it was kind of like, well, that's a bit, you know, at odds with what you were saying before. But they, ultimately, they, they it was a group decision, as they always are. So it was the carnival is over. I think it was, it, it was imperative that it had to be carnival because... That also um, had that the emotional pull that that had. It wasn't the happy-go-lucky song um, of the first two singles. Perhaps it was such a contrast, and because of that, it gave fans an extra dimension to what the Seekers could do. And I think that was absolutely important that that song was released, and it proved to be a very, very successful number one. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. As far as the reunion years go, um, that's also a tough one. As Graham found, it was tough. But there's one song I would share his love of the Bush Girl. I think that's a pretty amazing song. But um, it's actually uh, one of my favourites because I love Bruce's lead vocals. I always feel he's so underestimated in the power of his convictions and his ability to cry with his voice. He's really quite a unique uh, uh, vocalist. There are no lights on our Christmas tree, which comes from the We Wish You a Merry Christmas album. And that to me is one of my favorite lead vocals that Bruce has ever recorded. 
it's a very pithy, very um, uh, uh, sort of come back at you sort of lyric and uh, great harmonies from the, the group. And I, I single that out as being a, a, a song I'd take to a desert island if I ever get there. Christmas tree, we must not spoil the telly No party games, no mistletoe, just whistle. With um, There Are No Lights On My Christmas Tree, that was uh, written and recorded by a British folk singer named Cyril Tawney. Uh, and the, I'd forgotten this until just now when you mentioned that song. When they were in the studio doing the Christmas album, um, I had a call from Judith and uh, she told me about the song that they were recording um, and there's a line in the song, um, we we hope he'll think the bang comes from, you know, because they were pulling crackers and their father being dead against Christmas or whatever, he was watching television. And whatever the, the original lyric was, the, TV, the name of the TV show um, would have been a 1960s British um, show, police show, that... Nobody, the Seekers hadn't heard of and I hadn't heard of. So she said, no one will know what that means. Can you think of a police show that fits the metre of that song? And because Judith doesn't watch that sort of television. And all I could think of was NYPD. So I said, well, there's that, you know, American, very popular TV series, NYPD. Um, So that's what they ended up. They will think the bang comes from NYPD. So I contributed to the lyric of that song. One Very word. Good. Well, it certainly <laughs> pulled it. They pulled it off beautifully. It was wonderful. Great. Uh, in general, Bruce did so many wonderful leads, both in the, the 60s and in the um, reunion years. But I really must emphasise how amazing his voice really is. And I want to give him due credit because some of the most beautiful Seekers love songs was sung by Bruce, Four Strong Winds, uh, Times They Are Changing, um, uh, Rattler. He just was a master tunesmith and a master vocalist and uh, he deserves his place in the sun and all credit to him. And I know- 